0: Hey, everybody, it's Randy, and I want to welcome you to the Vine to Zero. Uh, today, we're excited to get another episode out and uh, really excited to have our guest on, uh, Doug Bowles. Uh, Doug is the uh, president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and uh, we we're thinking this is a, a, a really cool way to kick off the month of May here in Indianapolis. Uh, so, before we get to that, though, um, I wanted to uh, quickly introduce uh, everybody to Ron Hanson. Uh, Ron is our Vice President of Operations, and uh, Ron just celebrated a 25-year anniversary with uh, Safety Management Group. So, Ron, welcome to the Vine.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, yeah. It's it's been a really exceptional 25 years, and uh, you know we had a luncheon last week, which was pretty cool. You guys uh, kind of surprised me and set that up, which was neat, but. Uh, it's just amazing what, what I've been able to see in the last 25 years, uh, you know, starting uh, back in 94 when there were seven of us and we were all supporting one client, uh, all the way to, to where we're with 200-plus uh, team members and associates working in all over the country. So uh, it's been quite a journey, and we've seen a lot of really good, uh, good things happen over the years.
0: You've, uh, you've been with Safety Management Group for 25 years, so maybe could
1: you talk a little bit about what you've done in that 25 years? Well, I started, uh, working for a global pharmaceutical manufacturer in Lafayette, Indiana, uh, back in 94 and was there for a couple of years, moved to Indianapolis and assisted the same client, uh, for a couple of years there. And then, uh, was fortunate enough to be one of the safety advisors on the, uh, Conseco Fieldhouse, the Indiana Pacers stadium. Uh, and that was a really a neat project. Uh, following that, I did some automotive work, uh, a lot of work with Honda and Toyota and other large automotive manufacturers. And then, uh. Segwayed back into some work with the pharmaceutical industry and then began managing our staffing teams uh, Up until about 2006 and at that point uh, took on the role of operations manager and and began helping out with uh, our legal and contracts and uh, Basically everything that falls under the realm of the operations world. So yeah, so you've seen a
0: ton of growth You said what seven or how many did you say Yeah, there were about
1: seven folks in that initial when I first started and uh, right? it's just grown like gangbusters. I think 2000, 2001 was when things really began to to grow. And, and obviously, uh, back then, the Indianapolis community really wasn't that big in safety. I mean, you saw groups like Mix began. Uh, there were owners like Lilly and IU Health and others who really began promoting uh, contractor safety programs on their job sites. And, and through mix and people like us i think the, the overall safety in the community has gotten better over the years and and part of that was a lot of these contractors that were trying to do work on these sites had no idea what a safety program was or or how to train uh their their craftspeople on on the various things that you know safety topics they need to be trained on so uh, our our business grew through relationship with owners initially but then to all of the contractors who were trying to do work on those sites. And, and from there we've really branched out. Sure. Well, Ron and I, uh, we became, I guess, business partners in Oh
0: five. And we're, we're fortunate to, to, uh, to have seen, um, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of growth since Oh five. And, um, just want to thank you for all your efforts over 25 years. And it's been, um, really fun time working
1: together and, uh, looking forward to the next, uh, the next uh, next step so no well, I appreciate that it, it certainly feels more like a beginning now than an ending I mean it's it's amazing some of the uh, some of the initiatives that the company has going on right now and some of the new business opportunities we have uh, it's great to see a lot of the new leaders uh, coming up through the ranks I mean that's probably the most exciting thing that I can tell you I've seen in the last 25 years is uh, you realize that the company's the company but uh, at the end of the day, it's really all the people who work at the company who make things the way they are. And it's been an exceptional ride to this point. And I'm real, uh, very optimistic and excited about what the next 25 years have in store for me and, and the rest of the company.
0: Cool. Hey, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. And uh, as we get into our topic of uh, IMS in the month of May, uh, I know you're a huge uh, IMS fan and um, you are pivotal in getting uh, Doug on uh, the podcast here and um, so we'll look forward to, to that interview here in a few minutes but uh, let's talk a little bit about our partnership at the track and um, what we have coming up in the month of May.
1: Okay well uh, back in I think it was probably 2008-2009 um, we've formed a relationship with Jugs Catering uh, a long time ago and uh, Kent, Burgett, and myself were always pretty good big race fans, and, and enjoyed the Indianapolis 500 and what the Speedway had to offer, and uh, had gone to a few races, but had never sat in a suite, and so uh, Jug Eckert, who uh, was the owner of Jug's Catering, introduced us to uh, some people up in the Turn 2 suites, and uh, they're, they're not the most glamorous suites in the world, uh, mm-hmm. they were vintage 1970, they were built long ago, but... It uh, used to be a hotel, right? Used to, well, no, it wasn't a hotel, the oh. hotel was in the parking lot, but oh, that okay. actually uh, has been the suites ever since, and uh Coca-Cola uh AJ Foyt has, is in the suite right next to ours so i mean a lot of the kind of the old timers uh, the the mm-hmm. people that made the place famous uh have suites and and go up in those areas and that's kind of what drew us to uh being out there the the view is incredible i don't think you could uh probably by building codes uh build a hotel that close to the track uh, the views within 40 to 50 feet of where the cars are at mm-hmm. uh but uh it's it's just a really neat place and so Uh, We had bought some tickets for our owner team uh, to attend a few races up there, and then the kind of the recession uh, took hold in 2009-2010 time frame, and we kind of backed off on a lot of our uh, discretionary spend. And then uh, I want to say it was 2012. um, I I reached out to the track just to see if there were any suites available because they'd been sold out for for quite a while, and uh, it just so happened there was one open on, on turn two, and it just so happened to be the same suite that we had sat in as an owner team a few years ago or prior to that so uh uh, anyway we leased the suite uh it was a bit of a kind of a stretch for us because we've been a very conservative uh group of of owners and uh, didn't really want to do something like that but it was it's something indianapolis has become famous because of the speedway and, and what goes on out there and i think it's just one of those things that uh, many of us would sit in our backyards with our, our families and uh, For sure. and have picnics and listen on the radio that didn't have the money or the means to go to, go to the race. So uh, I think a lot of us just got brought up with that. And so to be able to, to actually have a suite out there to entertain our customers and our associates uh, was a pretty big deal. And it's been a really good thing, I think, just to to be able to promote it Uh, to to also associations and groups like the uh, NAWIC, for example, National Association of uh, Women in Construction. We've had the American Society of Safety Engineers out there on multiple times. So uh, it's been good. We're able to share it with associations and our associates and clients, and uh, it's worked out pretty well to this point. So we're excited about what's coming up uh, actually this month. Here next uh, weekend will be the, uh, I think it's the sixth annual Uh, indianapolis grand prix race uh it'll happen on the 11th of may uh it's basically a day of of racing that will go on amongst the uh, various feeding series that uh they have and then we'll end up with the uh the indianapolis grand prix for the indycar series at 330 on saturday so that all leads up to the 103rd running of the greatest spectacle in racing right it absolutely does (laughs) so then on tuesday the 14th practice begins for the uh, practice for the 500 and uh the qualifying weekend, the 18th and 19th, we'll host our associates out there. We try to get uh, as many associates and family uh, out there as we can, and so that's a great weekend to have the kids and, our, and the families come out and do that. So, uh, And then, like you said, the 103rd will happen on the, uh, I believe it's the 26th. So there's a lot going on. Uh, the mini-marathon takes place this weekend. I think Mutt Strut was last weekend. Um uh, so the next three to four weeks are a very uh, exciting and busy time to be uh, part of the Indianapolis, Indiana community. So yeah, so you were um, uh, you were in attendance when we were
0: interviewing Doug a couple weeks back. Anything you want to offer up for?
1: Well, I, for I I I think it's interesting. Doug has brought a lot to the table. I mean, I I look back to when. Uh, you know, the IndyCar cart split and how things kind of went downhill for a number of years, at least from a perception standpoint. But uh, it seemed like about the time that that Doug and Mark Miles and Allison got involved that things really began to get on the uptick. And and Doug has has done a lot of things from a, a community outreach standpoint to utilization of social media. Uh, I know for a fact he surrounds himself with, with a very solid team uh, in, in all aspects out there. Uh, Craig Cox was, was the uh, customer service rep with Premium Services who was able to help us accommodate uh, today's podcast. And uh, really that entire team does a great job. Customer service is, is the biggest thing they deal with out there, and it's, a, it's kind of a good lesson for us too. I mean, we, we surround ourselves with good professionals within our business, and, and I think Indianapolis Motor Speedway does the same
0: yeah one of the things that doug mentions um in the podcast is uh his, him uh, which i think is really cool calling 10 clients a day i mean he's really involved and wanting to get feedback how are we doing what, what can we do better um on his way home on his drive home he talks about that but uh okay well cool ron thanks uh appreciate it i'm gonna i'm gonna dive in here and uh do a quick um quick intro on, on doug's background uh, doug bowles is uh, again the president of indianapolis motor speedway uh, he started with IMS in, uh, November of, uh, 2010 as a vice president of communications. Uh, he's held positions as uh, chief operating officer and then was promoted to president in July of 2013. Uh, Doug, uh, holds his, uh, BA in journalism from Butler University and his law degree from Indiana University, Robert H. McKinney School of Law. Uh, we have a really, uh, cool conversation with Doug. Uh, you can definitely tell, um, his passion for the Indianapolis motor speedway and the history, uh, around the, uh, the IMS and, and the activity at, at, Indianapolis motor speedway. Our conversation today, uh, gets into a lot of areas uh, relative to, uh, uh, you know, what it takes to pull off, uh, a big event like this, uh, safety for the, uh, the visitors to the track, uh, the team members, uh, the volunteers, uh, the workers and, uh, I think you're really going to like this in today's episode, which Doug titled, Is It May Doug, welcome to the Vine to Zero. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, hey, um, in preparing for uh, our interview today, um, I was just doing some quick background research on on your background and and, um, the history of of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which is uh, uh, tremendous, but... um, Uh, One of the things I know, uh, just real quickly, I want to thank you for your time today, meeting with us. I know you're, you know, 41 days out before the next uh, 103rd running of the Indy 500. And uh, just quickly about our connections, Uh, we're we're, uh, partners. Uh, We've had a suite out at the track for a while. So it's a a nice venue for our team members and also to, to entertain some of our clients from time to time. Uh, we do have a safety advisor one of our team members corey moore is one of the ems responders who who participates in the event every year so that's kind of cool but as i was listening uh, or as i was kind of preparing uh and learning more about your background uh there's different levels of passion right when you talk about passion uh, passion for safety for example uh you have a passion for the indianapolis motor speedway that's uh, that i i kind of define it as passion i see that couple things. You skydived into the IMS. Twice. 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 Oh, twice. Uh, You're a Butler grad. I have a daughter that's going to be a senior at Butler next year, which is kind of cool. And um, uh, you chose Butler over DePaul, right? I did. I was going to go to DePaul to swim at DePaul,
2: and Butler sort of called me last minute. There's a lot of family history Related to Butler, but okay. the the overriding decision really was it was closer to the Indianapolis okay. Motor Speedway than DePaul was. So I figured I could spend most of my spring days out here. And, and it was back in a day when there was testing here throughout the year. So you could hear cars running and, you know, there'd be fall testing and early March tire testing. And and uh, I found ways to basically be here anytime I heard a car running. And that wow. it was an easier drive from, from Butler, you know, sure. 49th and uh, in, in
0: Indianapolis versus uh over over on the west side of the state sure and that i mean talk about passion right uh picking your college so you could be closer to the track that's pretty that's pretty awesome uh and then family right um you know share a quick story um you talked about attending your first race i think around uh, maybe nine or ten your your dad worked at the track um um my you know sharing just kind of my uh background with the track uh my dad was a big a j Foyt fan right and every good year man. we would, He's yeah' a good man yeah every year we would uh you know um big family but not come to the race, but you know we always park it out back radio's on we're listening listening to the broadcast uh but that maybe talk a little bit about your your background with with the track and just in general your background and how you arrived here
2: yeah so i I grew up in a household where the Indianapolis 500, IndyCar racing, uh, short track racing was really what we were passionate about. My dad was the United States Auto Club yearbook editor when he first got out of Butler University, uh, which was essentially their PR person back in the day. And USAC actually sanctioned the Indianapolis 500. So grew up in this house where that's what we talked about. It's sort of what we did. And, and I always, as a kid, go into practice and qualifying, got an opportunity to do a lot of that as a kid. But in our house, the rule was you had to be 10 to actually go to the race so my first race was 1977 I still argue I was closer to 11 then but I had to officially be 10 so okay. I, I was I was arguing I should have gone in 76 but I was also a massive AJ Foyt fan so the idea that my first Indy 500 was AJ's fourth win uh, especially the the further I, I get in age the more I think that's pretty cool that that was that was it and I'm and I think making me wait till I was 10 probably helped me um just really understand what the event what the event really meant and then uh, Sort of spent my, like you said, I went to Butler because it was close. I became a journalism major because I figured I'm never going to race cars, but I can write about them. I spent a lot of time out here sneaking under the fence on on test days. I got kicked out (laughs) a couple times, you know, when they'd find some kid sitting in the bleachers. Uh, But it was, uh, you know, it was really what I wanted to do. I was in politics for quite a while right out of school, but even in that found ways to weave in motorsports with what I was doing and and really started uh, having jobs in the sport. I worked at Raceway Park as one of my first uh, first racing internships, and then I maintained that even early in my professional career, working weekends out there, and then uh, had an opportunity to do some things with one of the IndyCar teams in the mid-'90s, and that ultimately turned into an opportunity to start Panther Racing as one of the uh, co-owners, and I was chief operating officer there. And somehow I ended up at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and it's still one of those jobs that uh, it's hard to believe that, that I get a chance to walk in every day and, and help lead the team.
0: That's awesome, that's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about um, the month of May. Uh, And maybe, um, you know, for our listeners, uh, you know, our podcast is all about uh, safety and building a safety culture. And when I think about um, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and not necessarily just the month of May, but just in general, the number of events that you hold out here. But focusing, I guess, in on the month of May, concerts, race teams, uh, fans. Um, I mean, it just seems like an overwhelming uh, task when it comes to managing that safety or that risk component. Can you talk a little bit about, about that and how your team manages that?
2: Yeah, you know, risk is one of the biggest factors in our business and the obvious one people think when you think racing is the cars on track, right? And the risk for a race car driver Uh, but the risk that we really think through, I mean, that's a risk that's important. And we think through an IndyCar or NASCAR, depending on the events really sort of lead that side of it. But once you get off the racetrack, there's safety risks and concerns everywhere. The first and foremost concern we have is for the people that show up on race day that are in the grandstands. How do we make sure that they're safe? Obviously you don't want cars flying. So that's one of the, you know, one of the things you try and make sure that, uh, uh, that our customers are safe there but it's a 110 year old facility and and parts of the facility that remain today uh, were built shortly after world war two and so you're talking about 75 year old structures that you're always and they have to live outside through indiana winters so you mm-hmm. never know what you're going to get in the spring but trying to make sure all of those uh, components are safe for our customers through project 100 which was a project that we invested about a hundred million dollars in the facility leading up to the hundredth running of the indy 500 there was a lot of safety concerns that went in there a lot of ability as we were updating parts of the facility to to make them safer Um, but but we worry about safety across the board one of the biggest safety challenges we have frankly is weather outdoor facility uh, what are you doing with customers if lightning comes or tornadoes come how do you manage through that and that's a big challenge for us and frankly people say what's your biggest what's the thing that keeps you up at night the thing that keeps me up at night is weather because you can't control it you don't know where it's going to come it's indiana in the spring you could think it's going to be a beautiful day and an hour later it's it's you're, you're dealing with something completely different so uh, thinking through that is certainly one uh but then we've got about 150 full-time employees that are here all year round and then on event day we have 5,000 employees when you consider our part-time and our seasonal and others are here and and depending on what they're doing some of them are in situations where you really have to go through a lot of OSHA training. You wanna sure. make sure that they're safe. Um, just that, so that is something that we are always thinking about. You mentioned concerts, you know, building those <laughs> stages and right. making sure that they're secured while they're, while, they're, while they're being built, getting customers in and out of areas that aren't traditionally concert venues, you know, you thinking through all of those pieces and it's definitely something that's uh, high on the radar here.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned weather. I know, I remember last year, uh, Brickyard, right? You had- yeah. The FGL, Three days of rain, right? Yeah. You had to push that. That's got to be tough to, you know, to deal with. And
2: you know, so I, I try and look at it as the the glass is half full. That was the 25th running of the Brickyard. It's the first time that's ever happened. So I guess those odds are pretty good. We'll take that once every 25 sure. years. It was a it was definitely a challenge for a, a lot of folks. Um, although uh, to be honest, just rain is not that big of an issue. It's when you get into the wind, when you get mm-hmm. into the lightning, you get into the, to, the tornadoes, those are the safety issues that you really start to worry about. So if it's just going to be a remnant of, uh, of a hurricane that ends up here and it's just rain, it, that's a lot easier to manage. It's disappointing, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot easier to manage than, uh, hey, there's a tornado at Terre Haute it's going to be here in forty-five minutes. You have three hundred thousand people in the grandstands, and it's sunny here. What do you do? Do you stop the race and tell people to get out of the grandstands, or do you hang on and hope that the tornado goes somewhere else? Because it's
0: Indiana weather. Right. Those are that's the day that I don't really look forward <laughs> to having to manage it. through. For sure. Yeah. So you mentioned let's stay on that uh, topic of public safety. What can you talk about some of the upgrades maybe that um, relative to public safety or you know uh, safety of the spectator?
2: So you know, when the Boston bombing happened in 2013, other than the Kentucky Derby, we were we were the first big event or the second big event, including the Kentucky Derby, um, to be held that year after the Boston bombing. And we went through hours upon hours upon hours of trying to figure out what we want to do. We knew we had to. We knew we had to tighten up our gates. We knew gate security had to be better. We knew that we had to. Uh, we had a conversation. Do you even allow coolers inside the Indianapolis Motor Speedway anymore? Uh, and ultimately, we decided you do because that is part of the experience. <coughs> right? Sure, right, bringing your own cooler is part of the experience. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and, and the, even even if it, even if we decided we didn't want to allow it, I don't know how you service 300,000 plus people with right. food and beverage. It's a struggle right now to service the people that that actually do use it. So. That was one of the risks that we had to decide what we want to do. We watched the Kentucky Derby, and the Kentucky Derby in their infield, they didn't even allow video cameras. I mean, they really started restricting what you could bring in. So we spent some time thinking about our gates, how we were going to manage through the gates, how we were going to look through coolers, stepped it up a little bit, and we actually backed our gates up really badly in 2013. And it was a combination of things, and and I hesitate to say this uh, because people – I'm not trying to say this is anybody's fault but our own because it's 100 our fault. But there were a whole bunch of things that happened that day that just made it worse. It was cold that morning, so people either stayed in their cars or they stayed home longer. You know, a bunch of things happened so that the, so that the convergence on our gates came a little bit later. We were slow. We didn't have enough gates. We didn't have enough lanes. It was it was a huge problem. So literally, like 11:25 that morning. I get a call to come to Pagoda Command, which is our centralized location in Pagoda, where it's got our safety, our yellow shirts, our safety patrol folks, uh, and all of law enforcement are, are on that floor. And we monitor all our gates via video camera. So I get up there. And at this point, I'm the chief operating officer. I'm not the president. Yes, okay. yeah, Jeff Belskis is still the president, but he said, this is your baby. You, you go deal with it, uh, meaning the event, right? right? And so they call me up there, and all of the gates are backed up. And so we were trying to figure out, what do you do? And we made a decision at that point in time to go to a visual check and a random cooler check in order to get everybody in because we didn't want people <coughs> to miss uh, to miss the start. Some sure. some did because mm-hmm. it, was, it was too late. Looking back on it, we probably should have said, man, we're just going to have to keep the gates as it is to, to kind of uh, let people get through. So that was the first time we really started dealing with it from how do we manage for our customer. So literally that afternoon I went down, it was my stepson's Connor Daly. Mm -hmm. That was his first Indy 500. I spent most of my time in the, in the Pagoda before race, went down just in time to give him a thumbs up and a pat on the helmet, and then went back back up to the Pagoda and worked through our issues there. We had a meeting that evening, and then actually on Memorial Day had a whole team. In fact, we brought people in, national folks in. We literally flew in the next day to start thinking about how do we fix this before next year, and our only real trial, and it's not even a real trial because it's a small, mm-hmm. small sample compared to 500, was the brickyard. So what could we do for the July brickyard to begin to think about how does that impact 2014 Indianapolis 500? So we added more gates, added more lanes, more people at the gates and lanes to to start bringing, get people through quicker uh, and began to change rules. And we subtly changed that. We have a lot of law enforcement help. We have a lot of dogs, a lot of dogs here doing um, bomb sniffing. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that we've changed. And This year, we're going to make even some more changes to continue to um, tighten up those gates. And the biggest thing this year, and we haven't started talking about it yet, but we'll start talking about it as we get uh, a couple more weeks in, is if you're not in your seat by 1130 on race day, we can't guarantee you're going to see the start of the race. So it's really, really important that we get people trained to come a little bit earlier, get them in so we can make sure that we are doing what we need to do at the gates and
0: and getting people safe. Yeah, so you... um you talk about, um, I guess, um, any, um, like when I think of, uh, IMS, I think of them, you're out there in front, right? So what about other racetracks? I mean, how do you share best practices? Maybe when you talk about, you know, uh, fan safety or public safety, uh, you know, getting people in sooner, you know, getting in, you know, at,
2: just like anything else, probably the same in your business. You, you know people, you see places. You, uh, every place I go, uh, I really don't go as a fan, right? You go as, okay, what can I learn? You're watching, you're mm-hmm. going through, ex- and, or you're asking questions. So you learn a lot when you go to, to different events. The challenge, with, especially with the 500, they're just not a lot of events like the 500. That many people in one location so the daytona 500 at some level is a great comparison for us it's a third the amount of people but it's but it's a lot of people in one spot so i I have a great relationship with the folks at daytona and we talk 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 quite a bit there as we think through that long beach that just happened this past weekend in california is a lot of people in a city setting so you learn you can learn a little bit from from those. So we do share practices as, as, as we go forward. We have hired some really great, um, retired law enforcement folks here that really now are focusing a hundred percent on safety of our customers, which we hadn't had, or we didn't have when I first got here. Uh, we work directly with local law enforcement and, and they will see other events and help bring us ideas that they've seen, seen at other places as well. So it's a combination of finding those best practices. The biggest challenges were just so unique. Sure. Some of the things that you might do at, at, at Banker's Life for example don't necessarily fit
0: at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Sure yeah it's an impressive to hear that you start I mean I, I would think you're exhausted from being here 24-7 the month of May and then the very next day you're you're at it trying to figure out what can we do better for the next event. Well and for
2: us and especially in 13 the reason we did that is because it was fresh in everybody's mind and we knew we didn't have a lot of runway to get to to get something implemented for the brickyard sure. because we don't necessarily want the Indianapolis 500 to be the test bed mm-hmm. for that. Cause you just don't know what's going to, what's going to happen.
0: So one of the things, um, we were talking through, uh, Ron and I about, um, uh, about just pedestrian say our pedestrian, I don't want to say spectator safety. Uh, we set up in turn two. we have a nice view, um, uh, cars coming around and the catch fence, right? What about some of the things that you've done at the track, um, maybe to protect the spectators, you know, that are viewing the race.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, our our uh, catch fence around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is is probably the best designed catch fence there is. Uh, one of the things that drivers would like us to do is figure out what's the next technology, right? Because that, t- that catch fence is designed to keep cars inside the racetrack. It isn't necessarily designed to, um, it's not the safest thing for drivers, right? There's just sure. hitting anything is not exactly what they want to do. So one of the things that we are looking at is how do you make that Uh, how can you keep spectators safe and at the same time keep race car drivers safe so so that's one of the things that we're looking through obviously the safer wall technology is something that's really been great for Mm -hmm. for our race car drivers Uh, but if you even look around our facility you'll see areas where especially like in between uh turns one and two the lower rows we just don't sell seats there anymore it's just we just it's too low in an area where there's where there's higher impact so you want to you want to remove some of the the folks from there. Even you think about nineteen seventy-three, the crash that happened to start and the folks that got burned. And from that point on, you know, you start you saw even along the front stretcher going into turn one, how the seats just move them and moving them away from the wall. I mean, there's some iconic photos of, of Clark Gable and Tony Hallman sitting with their arm you know, the elbows in turn one, watching cars at the start of the Indianapolis five hundred and, and how cool those photos are. But you think about it, there's no way mm-hmm. that that's a that that's a, a, a good practice. So those are definitely things that we are thinking about. How do you Make sure that you are doing everything you can to keep the customer safe first and foremost and then from there you start worrying about drivers staff people that have signed liability releases that know the danger when they walk in pit lane or or
0: or whatever that's a sort of a different conversation sure so um you talked a little bit about um driver safety can we can we talk a little bit about that Um, maybe the safer barrier some of the improvements that have been made over you know the last what 20 30 years
2: you know that it's amazing, really, if you think back to when Tony Hallman purchased the Speedway in November '45 and had his first race in 1946. That the technology, uh, just the driver's helmet technology, the driver fire suit technology, the restraint tre- technology inside the cars. A lot of those things uh, that you know, the restraint technology that we feel today in the regular automobile, they didn't have in a race car back then. So mm-hmm. th- there was some big leaps there. But I think the two things I think that have really changed uh, is the ability to get our medics and doctors to an incident in a really, really quick way and the process they have to get a driver from the car to the infield care center or directly to a hospital uh, to, to methodist hospital and the, and the way that they've been able to identify inju- injuries or anticipate injuries based on how cars crash and all, all the data has really helped us i think in terms of knowing how to treat a driver but the but the biggest the biggest change and maybe the biggest uh, safety innovation in the history of our sport is the safer, the safer wall. And uh, Tony George invested in that along with the University of Nebraska early when nobody else believed that it was the right thing. Who would have thought steel walls, right, mm-hmm. are, are going to be safer for race car drivers? But Tony believed in it. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway became the first facility to adopt it and use it. And it's now onto sort of a, a safer wall 2.0. Uh, but it is the one thing I think that has made the biggest difference because it has reduced the, the amount of Gs that a driver or a car takes when they have an impact there. Uh, and it's and it's implemented virtually everywhere right now. And I think because we're so used to it right now, uh, uh, and we've gotten to a point where fatalities or serious injuries are, are not the norm like they used to be, um, I don't think people quite understand how important that is in our sport. And I think as we go along here, people will look back and see that as one of maybe the best uh, technological, uh, certainly safety changes that's happened in the last
0: 50 years. 50 years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. Um, what about? Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, Dr. Terry Trammell and maybe some of the some of the uh, contributions?
2: So this goes back to my first point, right, about, about the, the, the doctors and the way that we, the way we approach an incident. It, for whatever reason, uh, God wired Terry Trammell in a way that he enjoys the, sort of the dealing with those horrible incidents. And if you know how he began and hit the first opportunity he had to work on a race car driver, um, people said, hey, we're going to have to amputate here. And he's like, no way, I'm putting this person back together. And just from that spirit of let's learn and get better, Terry had, took on not only how do you fix a driver when they're injured, but let's understand how a car crashes, when it crashes, what are, the, what are the chances or where, or how are we gonna injure race car drivers so that we can A, be prepared to treat those injuries, but more importantly B, begin to design cars that can eliminate those risks. So if you think about in the early 80s, when the drivers were so far forward in the race cars, they had all these lower extremity injuries, all the things that were happen to, happening to them. Then they began to design cars where the drivers sat back further. And then we had back injuries because the way cars were backing into corners, the way that they spin. And then they started designing ways to manage through that. The head surround that, that where the driver's head is inside the cockpit now to keep them from the neck injuries and the things they have. Those are all... Because somebody like Terry Trammell sat down and looked at every single accident and started to find a trend in a way, in a way to deal with them. So I, I think Steve Olvey and Terry Trammell probably um, are the two most instrumental um, surgeons, doctors um, who've been involved in helping us change. it. And it's because they went beyond, let's just treat the driver when we get him. Let's figure out why they're injured and then help the car manufacturers uh, solve for that. So he's definitely... He's definitely made a huge impact on the sport, and I don't know right now who the next uh, Steve Olvy or Terry Trammell will be, but we need that next passionate um, surgeon mm-hmm. to come in and say, okay, how do we continue to help uh, the IndyCar series move forward in terms of safety? Those- you know, one, one of the questions we get a lot, there's, there's traditionalists who remember when the Indianapolis Motor we had the apron, which was the lower groove below the line. It was about eight to ten feet below the line that that came out right before the NASCAR race, and and maybe the last really um, the last year where everybody remembers it as IndyCar is that epic battle between Michael Andretti and Rick Mears passing each other uh, using the apron. Um, we took the apron away, and at one point in time a few years ago, we thought, let's maybe we bring the apron back. Not so much for IndyCar, but because we think it might make the NASCAR racing a little bit more competitive. And the first thing we heard was, well, the problem with that, especially for IndyCar, unless you're willing to police it and say cars can't go below it, um, you're going to get in a situation where you've added eight, eight feet more, which means you're going to completely change the crash trajectory of these cars. And Mm -hmm. if you do that, we're going to, we're going to, they're going to, they're going to hit the wall at a different spot, which means they're going to do something differently internally at the car, which means they're going to probably injure a driver differently. So you're going to set yourself back. So one of the reasons we decided that was best to leave it alone uh, was because we didn't want to have to introduce another unknown as it relates to the safety of our drivers.
0: Right. So how involved are you in those discussions decisions are you right in the mix of all of it <laughs> yeah absolutely you know yeah. one of
2: the things for sure uh with this facility that we are working side by side with uh, nascar and indycar is you know how do we continue to make make it safer um the challenge with the indianapolis motor speedway is because when it was designed uh it was not designed to ultimate all at, at Carl Fisher had ideas that he was going to do a road course, ultimately didn't, but it was designed as it, it lived most of its life as an oval. And as we added the road course, it's made it harder for us to do some things that other racetracks um, have been able to do. So we're a little bit unique, really narrow, long straightaways. If you add safer wall, for example, on our backstretch, um, which we don't have, you take out 30 inches of racing room. So all of a sudden you take a 50-foot track okay. and you just you just narrow it up even more. And drivers like the ability to spread out. They think there's safety in that. So we have to we're in a situation where we manage through the right places for safer wall, for example. Um, one of the things we're doing, actually right now is we're actually adding more safer wall at the entry to turn three. Uh, We added a couple years ago more safer wall at the exit of every corner because as the cars have gotten different, the crashing tended to be further and further towards the end of our safer wall or in the transitions. So we just have to watch it, and you always try and stay on top of it. Um, We started this conversation out about risk. Risk in racing will never go away. Uh, And unfortunately, we're going to have those moments where no matter how hard we try, Um, something will go wrong, and oftentimes it goes horribly wrong. Um, And hopefully you learn from that, and hopefully you don't have to deal with that. But I I caution people. We've gotten really comfortable in the fact that these cars and these facilities are so, so safe. And then when you have a Dan Dan Weldner or Justin Wilson incident, it reminds you that um, it's a dangerous sport no matter how safe you think it
0: is. Sure. Now, what did you take from being a car owner uh, running a race team to, to your current position?
2: I think the biggest thing that, that you take is is how even a small change in a rule or a small change in a schedule, how that has a drastic impact on the teams from a tra- uh, increased travel costs or parts they have to buy, or if you're putting more um, hours on a schedule, for example, to be on track, just how much more that impacts a budget. So you think through everything from how is this going to impact the, the end team user uh and so that's that's been helpful you know i think the one thing i miss from the team side is the ability to uh, suit up with a bunch of guys and gals in the same color and go compete Mm -hmm. and you know so the one thing this team competes in a way um i I, we but basically we set the stage right we don't actually get to go out and compete against somebody and so i missed that a little bit there's something about that just the camaraderie of of going out with a group of folks who've worked their tail off for a week to get to the next race and 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 compete against the best.
0: Yeah. So you're uh, T-minus forty days or forty-one days. What's uh, what's your schedule like? What do you when you when you're planning for the event? Right. What's a day like for you? So the closer and closer we get to May, the more and more I can't tell you what's happening
2: in my schedule because I just they sort of point me. Yeah. Right. And 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 I go from there. Um, a lot of right now we're just doing last minute prep we're just coming out of winter so making sure everything's get sure. It, you know we turn off power and water and all those things so making sure everything's back on you know what broke in the winter that you don't know till you turn back right. on in spring. Um, talking to customers, just trying to get ourselves ready for opening day. So the race is 41 days from now, which means we're 15 days from really opening on track with the right. IndyCar Grand Prix. Sure. So it's even it's even sooner than that. And if back it up another seven days, 22 days from now, we're into the mini marathon. You know all those things that the, all those things that happen. So we we're uh, it's it's just around the corner. So that's a it's a tough one. Uh, but uh it's like i said it's it's a lot of my schedule sort of set for me and then it's uh putting out fires sure. a- and my biggest thing is i want to stay out of everybody's way <clears throat> at this point in time we have the best team in the world they know how to do things
0: so i just want to be available to solve problems or help work through issues if they've got them sure um in our business one of the our with our, for our clients one of the one of the biggest things that, that we can offer and help them, you know, prepare for a project or an assignment is you know, pre-planning, you know, and pre-planning for, for the event. Um, what kind of, um, from a safety standpoint, um, you, know, our, you know, we talk about safety huddles with our work crews every morning. Uh, what kind of planning or discussions or things like that are involved in, in planning for the event, I guess, with your, with your workers every day? So we start um, a
2: lot of our planning, you know, as soon as the race is over for next year, right? You go through, okay, what worked, what didn't. Uh, we'll do um, uh, localized internal um, work committees on issues so that we can have those solved for the next year. So we'll begin those in June and start figuring out how to, how to get them implemented by now. But, but um, a couple of places where we're planning all the time. Uh, We've done some tabletops with local law enforcement and our key decision makers here. So we go through a lot of different scenarios that the law enforcement puts together for us. So how are we going to communicate? How are we planning for that? We'll go through our emergency action plans to make sure that the key people understand at least the key elements of those emergency action plans. Mm -hmm. And and oftentimes, you know this, you can plan all all you want. And the scenario that happens won't be one that you've planned for. But the key in all that is that you know who you're going to be working with and dealing with and who to communicate and, and how to come together. So we have a process for you know if there was an incident whether it's a major weather incident or you have a major incident on the track that includes injury to a fan for example you know where do we end up how do we manage through that who are the key people that 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 work through that so that's definitely um, something that we go through uh, quite a bit beginning the beginning of the year Um, communication strategies how do we communicate to uh, and what and what mechanisms do we use to communicate to staff uh, mm-hmm. Does it have to go beyond staff to customers, if, uh, does, or does it just go to stakeholders like teams and others? So, so understanding how we're planning those through, depending on what the what the issue might be. So, uh, you know, that's probably twenty five percent of what we're doing between now and then. It's just making sure that by the time gates open, everybody's pretty comfortable with if this happens. Here's you know, here's what we do, and we always, you know, like I said, we always end up with that thing that's not something you plan through, but you at least know where you're going, how to get there, and, and the team knows who,
0: who they're communicating with. But that's essential, I think, to, you know, to work through that. Okay. Um, is there anything that um, maybe the, you know, a spectator, average average Joe out there on the street um, might take for granted a relative to safety? Something that comes to mind that you you might think of that, you know, hey, it's just, uh, something that's not really in the forefront that we think of when we think of safety at, at this event or at, at the IMS. You
2: know, I, I th- the, the one thing, I, as as I recall being a fan, I mean, you walk in and you just assume, you know, somebody turns the lights on and opens the place <laughs> up and it works on race day. I, I still get the to question tons. What do you do the rest of the year? I mean, what, you know, they, like right. as if you don't have to plan and work through. Uh, uh, making that happen you know I don't know that there's anything that would be surprising to a customer in terms of the, the safety pieces that we think through um, you know I think the one place where people don't necessarily realize there is a greater risk and we're really good about giving people this access but but pit lane access is a it's a dangerous spot and sure. I and for people who have who are like our sweetholders. holders get a transferable credential and you take your guests down in there and it and which i love because it gets people up close and it gets them really passionate about it but there isn't a more dangerous place in the facility than there and it's from um a tugger cart that you can't hear because it's loud running you over from you know a car coming in pits too hot having an incident to fuel getting spilled you know there's a whole bunch of things that uh that there's risk being in there and as a race fan it's just like wow i'm close to AJ Foyt and Tony Khan and you forget all those other pieces there and that that's one of the places that does that does worry us and we want people to have that experience uh, but we also want people to understand that it it is a serious experience. I remember on the team side one year I think we were at Kentucky and they allowed people to just bring their beers in and and, and oh, yeah. in the middle of a race you got people partying in the back behind your pit stand. And we had a, we had a fuel, a fuel splash. We had a little bit of fire in the pit stand and you've got these people just laughing and joking. I can remember being real mad and telling the security guys, just get these people out of here. Mm-hmm. This is not a place to, you know, drink a bunch of beer and laugh while my engineer is jumping in a 55 gallon barrel of water. Cause he's on fire, right? right? It's just, it's, there's a lot that can go wrong there. And I know it's, it's human nature is to say it's never going to happen to me, but it's, it's
0: a pretty scary place sure yeah, that's a great great point I'm gonna um, I'm gonna wrap things up because I know we're getting close on time here but um, uh, what about your day your when we think about race day you have I'm sure you have guests hospitality you have all of your you know your team members are out there you know uh, putting the event together getting things dialed in you have family in the race you know how how's that work for
2: you I mean so my race day begins about five in the morning on Saturday all right So the last four or five years I haven't slept. So you wake up Saturday morning, you get the public driver's meeting, you're making sure you're ready to get everybody open for that. got the parade. I participate in the parade, working through last-minute challenges. Last year, we had a storm come through about 9 o'clock the night before the race. Blew over all kinds of things. We were up all night. We had problems with the snake pit. Um, video walls were, were waterlogged and trying to figure out how to manage through that. So you get those things thrown in. But it literally, that, that, that day you work through, um, I end up trying to get to a whole bunch of different events that you get invited to that you can't stay but you walk in and say hello and move on, so it's just sort of constant. Uh, and then like I said, the night, the, night of the, ra- the night before the race is golf cart, making sure everybody's good, working through the whole evening. And then um, you know Sunday morning, uh, I, you, the last few years I've started, uh, the first real public thing I've done is I've taken a group of people to the roof of the pagoda uh, do a champagne toast and watch the sunrise to raise some money for uh, uh, for the JDRF. Uh, we raised you know fifteen to twenty thousand dollars just doing that, which is awesome. kind of a cool. That's my one one opportunity to stop for a minute and just give thanks and go. Oh my gosh, it's the coolest thing in the world to see the sun come up um, at the pagodas as, as the people start to come in. And then you're right; it's juggling customers, um, hospitality folks, pre race re- uh, you know pre race um, issues, TV interviews, whatever the PR team has me doing, and then. The one moment, probably my favorite 90 seconds back home again in Indiana, which yeah. is just, you know, right. it's a, always an emotional moment. And then I get a chance to drive one of the parade cars at the start of the race, pull that in. Um, and then I spend most of my time uh, available if I'm needed, but spend most of my time in the grandstands. I walk and thank thank customers. So Good I have customers. a list of customers That's who have awesome. been 60, 70, 75, Indianapolis 500s, a lot of people that actually have been coming since before World War Two just going out thanking them and, and, uh, and then end up uh, back at the pagoda at some point. And I usually avoid the victory lane um, celebration and then try and catch up with the drivers afterwards. And then we always grab the team uh, that evening and, and have a toast as to a team. And then uh, I get to bed for a little while and then we come back Monday morning and start doing all the stuff we have to do Monday morning with the photo shoot and all the, all that's going on get ready for victory celebration. And I usually right unwind sometime on Tuesday.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, we're right here. So uh, anything else you want to Close with,
2: you know, I th- the one thing that I that I think uh, maybe uh, it, it has impacted me, or that I've learned the most in this job, uh, being a fan, uh, I know how much I'm passionate about the Indy Five Hundred. Sure. But having an opportunity to interact with fans and realize how many people share that same passion, and you started off uh, talking a little bit about how listening to it on the radio oh right and i I call 10 customers every night on my way home and uh, so i read that so tonight on my way home (laughs) i'll say hi this is doug Bowles, president indianapolis motor speedway not calling for any other reason than to say thank you we don't get to celebrate 103 runnings of the indy 541 days without folks like you just really appreciate it and want to make sure that you know that everybody at the indianapolis motor speedway appreciates the commitment that you make to come make this such a special event and it's interesting, you get into these fascinating conversations with people who, and, and, and I can, I'll say, so how did you get introduced? It's usually my dad or my granddad or college buddy, something like that brought me to the Speedway. But but the other one that you hear all the time is, wow, well, we used to have this cookout at Uncle Bill's house in Oklahoma. And we would sit in the backyard and cook out and throw the football or whatever and listen to the race on the radio. And I would say to myself, I'm going to go there someday. And the first time I went, I've you know, never, never missed one since then and it, and so for me to hear how passionate people are about the Indianapolis 500 and what's crazy 80% of the people that come to the Indianapolis 500 don't watch another race the rest of the year so not that they don't attend one they don't watch, right, they don't one, right? watch it at all right and yes. it makes you realize it's not it's not really it is about the race but it's not it's about the overall it's about the event and it's also about the emotional feelings like coming in every day to the indianapolis motor speedway and thinking about that first race that i walked through with my dad i think about my dad every day i come here and think sure. about man what a great gift that my dad gave me that you know the passion right. for the indianapolis motor speedway and you sit and you go this is these are the greatest fans in the world they they, they travel from all over the tra- travel from all over the world they come early in the morning they stay late at night they sit in traffic they have to walk miles to get to their seats uh, it, and there's just something really amazing about this event, and you hear from everybody, no matter where they sit, they have the greatest seats in the venue. It's it is, um, it's a magical place. But it also, it's also the challenge of the place. How do you make sure that we position it to be here in another hundred and three years? Mm-hmm but at the same time not offend what makes us so special, which are those, there's there's certain things in our DNA that you absolutely can't ever change, right? And then, then you have to, as you go further and further from that core, what are the things that you can s- change subtly to appeal to the next generation? So the new snake pit, for example, right? That, right. that offended the people that loved the old snake pit, but it's, right. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's not core. It's not central to our DNA. The experience you had was, was and we're creating something similar for this next g- generation of under 30 folks who hopefully end up buying tickets but the passion for the, for, for the Speedway that the folks have is like, it's like each one of them are shareholders and own it themselves. It's a privately held company that everybody who comes here feels like they own and that's the, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? It's, it's when you make changes, they feel like, oh, hey, you didn't ask me, but the beauty of it is they feel like they want to say, hey, you didn't ask me because they care so much about it. So it's, that's the thing I've learned is there are so many people passionate like we all are and in a lot of ways more passionate than we are and it's what it's what makes you feel good about the sustainability of this event And you just want to um you know i just i i'm not a hugger but if i could hug people man i'd hug everyone saying thank you very much (laughs) because this is uh it's one of the coolest things
0: well you know it's funny you mentioned uh just the passion of of people one of the first races i attended was with a friend a friend uh, a friend of mine and their family and we were driving down, I think Georgetown. The car broke down. No joke. We're probably still a mile out or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, the car broke down, you know? And he's like, yep. Everybody out. We're walking to the race. I'm like, what? The car's broken? He's like, yeah. It'll be good. Well, it'll be here when we get back, right? So, we're not gonna miss the race. We're not gonna miss the start. We're not gonna miss the parade lap. We're yeah. not gonna miss, you know, back home again in Indiana. It's it's awesome. So. Well, Doug, thank you again for taking time. Um, I'm gonna to toss it back to you one more time. This is uh, your, your chance to, to name your episode.
2: Well, I, I was trying to think through what, what would make the most sense, and uh, you know, obviously back home again in Indiana is a pretty cool one. But I, I, think, I think one of the things that's been neat about our marketing campaign the last few years, and I think it resonates with a lot of people, certainly in central Indiana, is is it May is it may is yet it, so I would say that is it may is it is it pretty
0: good or is it may yet it'd be a good one is it may yet all right awesome thank you very much thank Doug you Bulls. Yep. appreciate it thanks